Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. Good. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome back to my strange world of neo-reactionary minor league alt-right YouTube hosting. Uh, we are going to, uh, we have a lot to talk about tonight because we were going to just, I was sarcastic, by the way, people. I mean, look, there's like no point in even trying to be really rigorous with how I describe myself because no matter how hard I try to make perfectly clear, I'm not even a right winger, really. Uh, I'm primarily a leftist, no matter how much I try to be precise about that. It doesn't really matter. There's going to be some... Uh, paranoiac ankle biters out there who uh, will insist that this is a neo-reactionary YouTube channel. So give me three uh, lines of any man and I'll find <laughs> enough to hang them. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Tell me about it. Uh, but just for those of you who might be joining for the first time, I was kidding. I'm not neo-reactionary at all. Actually, I just talk with them sometimes. <laughs> well, we're going to get into this. All right. Uh, in any event, uh, we have DC Miller here. He was on the live stream last week. So many of you know who he is now from uh, his introduction in the Murphyverse last week. Uh, but uh, many of you still don't really know who DC Miller really is. In fact, I don't really know who DC Miller really is, although I've got to know him somewhat over the past week. So one of the goals of this particular live stream is going to be to try to understand uh, who is this paradoxical figure here on my right, uh, who some call fascist. All right, we're going to try to get to the bottom of this. Seriously, uh, to you know, to what degree is DC Miller a, a fascist? So uh, we wanted to talk about a few different things, but we are aided this evening by the uh, chance occurrence of a quite uh, <laughs> impressive, I would say, hit piece that came out just uh, today. As a matter of fact, someone, uh, a group, I believe, signed this this letter that went out today. It was an open letter of condemnation against Nina Power, who is um, someone that DC and I both know and like, and uh, who you might also remember from last week's live stream. So Nina, for those of you who don't know, ha you know, a while back uh, had some denunciations for some things that she said. Uh, and without even going back into that whole history, that more or less was, uh, you know, that, that more or less subsided. And she's an academic and she's been doing her thing quite well. Anyone who hasn't been denounced by now, I would say, is somewhat suspicious, actually, by this point, don't you think, Justin? Yeah, I think we are rapidly approaching a point where if you have not been denounced by some kind of idiotic, paranoid, left-wing idiot, then uh, people are going to wonder if you ever, you know, existed or something. There's like a kind that. of inversion of the economy whereby it's, you know, anything that can be pounced on as material for denunciation, and then if you're not, in fact, producing anything then what are you what are you producing there you go and uh, so yeah just to uh just to continue setting things up a little bit and then we'll jump right into it i know i give very long-winded introductions I'm trying to avoid that 
nonetheless, basically, make a long story short, uh, Nina has been doing her thing, giving talks, and uh, despite being denounced in the past, and but recently, my live stream of last week uh, was taken as an opportunity by some person out there or small group of people to uh, denounce Nina again and make an explicit effort to actually get her disinvited for some from some things. So I'm not even going to bother linking it. Uh, you can obviously Google it and find it. It's on my t- timeline if you really want to see it. But uh, yeah, basically someone wrote this long, uh, basically interpretation of my live stream from last week, including Nina and DC. Uh, and it's just absolutely bonkers. I mean, it's like truly uh, very just patently paranoiac, ridiculous I- interpretation. Um, and, but it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, uh, like hilarious how serious it is and and how you know a lot of thought actually went into it like this person actually watched the entire live stream and cited a bunch of different details of my live stream from last week and uh, nonetheless and it's clearly like a decent writer whoever wrote it um but it's just this like completely implausible uh uh narrative or account or interpretation of who i am and who dc and nina are uh that's just yeah, it's kind of beyond stupid to the point of being truly comedic at, at, at certain points. So I've made some notes of this document, uh, and, I, and I think we're going to spend some time addressing some of it. It's probably giving the authors of this piece too much credit uh, to even give them this kind of attention or recognition. But, man, there are some really funny ideas in this interpretation of me and and, and, and what we're doing here. So, uh, yeah, I thought it'd be a good opportunity to, to uh, engage some of the uh, critiques, if you can even call them that. So, as always, if you have any questions or comments... We're looking at the chat here, so uh, feel free to uh, send us any questions or comments. We'll be we'll be monitoring this. Uh, I mean, you find it funny, but in a way, it's it's quite typical and symptomatic, actually. And and some people think it's very serious. I mean, they take it very seriously what um, what this person has said. And it's interesting because it's a view into another kind of a universe, a certain kind of universe in which you know everything is very guilty by association. Everything can be made guilty by the fact that it can be associated with with anything else. It's a kind of a magical universe, actually. Yeah, and I find it hilarious in part because I mean I've already made my calculations and I've made my decisions to kind of go all in on just saying whatever I want at all times and basically now there's nothing that anyone can kind of take away from me. I mean, there are maybe still some things, but uh, for me, it's just kind of comedic at this point. But for other people, I think whose livelihoods still depend in some way on uh, some kind of modicum of, of social acceptability, then this type of stuff is, you know, very serious and, 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 it, and it's not so comedic. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it was, um, it seemed to me, it was actually very reminiscent of, uh, the kind of logic that was applied back in 2017 in order to shut down the, the LD50 gallery, which is also like the story of, of, of how I became a, a super fascist, as it were. I mean, I don't know if I necessarily want to talk too much about myself, but it's somehow interesting to me also objectively because um, something quite strange and in a way funny that also itself happened. Right. Well, no, that's, I'm glad you bring that up. Let's just get right to that then, because the, one of the things that's alleged in this article, and I'm sure other people like that idiot guy, Luke Turner, uh, have alleged that basically there's this idea that you're a fascist. Do you want to just kind of he- uh, tackle that head on? Well, it's, it's actually the essence of this denunciation is basically, you know, Nina's denounced for appearing with us and, and specifically with me. And the, the thing is that like, it's, um, 
considered to be obviously it's very obvious that it's very bad to, to appear with me because of all of my uh, you know extreme you know extreme views on 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 subjects on various subjects now like no one has actually ever identified anything not one thing that I've ever said which is you know something that could lead one to such a conclusion but but nonetheless like it's somehow taken for granted like even that I've sort of confessed I've confessed to my neo-Nazism apparently no one can produce this confession and you know actually I'm 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 Jewish to be honest and so I'm like I'm making it like I think I would that would make me one of the world's only neo-Nazi Jews apart from Ryan Gosling in that in that movie that he was in <laughs> well this recent article says that you're an esoteric fascist oh yes yeah. So here's an idea. Maybe we could try this exercise. DC, would you mind? Could you try to steel man mm. this this argument that you're a fascist? Kind of dig deep and be as charitable as you can to uh, understand in what universe someone could, uh, you know, what's the closest you could uh, kind of, uh, what's the best rendering of that argument that you could imagine? And then we'll we'll kind of respond to that. Well, there are two um, there are two pieces of evidence which are put forward in this case. One is the fact that I, I participated in this protest um, outside outside the LD50 gallery, which was itself accused of of, of being actually even not a gallery, but uh, a neo-Nazi recruiting center. This was the charge that it was alleged, um, you know. And so, therefore, like for for my participation or my connection or my association with that, actually, it was um, enough to contaminate me by. Um, you know, by proximity with it. And then the second point is that, you know, I am interested in, in Evola amongst other people. Although, of course, like the other strange reality is that, you know, I was quite interested in Evola because I also, you know, I read him at university, but, you know, I'm also interested in, in many other people, but only people want to talk to me about Evola. And so, okay, fine, like I'll, I'll, I'll talk about him. And the reality is that he also kind of wasn't a fascist either. He was actually a much more interesting person he was a Dada painter, amongst other things. And also he wrote these very interesting books about magic. I, I did a podcast with, with Meda Nomad uh, on hermetics. If you want to know about Evola. So, I mean, that's basically it, you know. And, like, I've done all these other things. I mean, you know, like, people never mention those things. I don't know. It's like, Do you have any political beliefs that even border on fascist? Well... It's hard to say these days because, of course, the term fascist has been expanded beyond all previously known limitations. So it's difficult to even know mm -hmm. what it could mean. I mean, it's, um, you know, fascism was this Italian political movement that was created by Mussolini in the 20s. And subsequent to World War II, it became something else. It became this kind of political mythos of basically whatever enemy it was that we were sort of fighting at the time. And this is why. We have a kind of um, psychological structure of anti-fascism actually today in which anything which is considered to be or thought to be or felt to be sort of somehow threatening to a certain kind of political consensus is, is labeled fascist. Um, and you have sort of all these new fascisms being produced every week, actually. And so views that were previously considered very normal and very you know, mainstream now are suddenly also fascistic in some, in some form. And... The term is just sort of wielded, actually, as a kind of like a magical, as a kind of magical word, you know, in order to also identify things that one can then attack um, violently, um, freely, and even feel good when you're doing that. You know? So, 
know, I would say personally, I'm somebody who's actually rather opposed to the notion that you should just go around violently attacking people whose views you don't agree with. And apparently, because of that belief, I'm, I'm a fascist. Okay. I think we've pretty much cleared up now that you're not a fascist. <laughs> you don't, you don't identify as a fascist. Uh, and I guess I'm from this crazy old-fashioned perspective. My is not fascist. I, I guess I have this crazy old-fashioned perspective in which if someone tells me they're not a fascist, they say, I reject fascism. I, I take that as a good enough indication that I'm not dealing with a fascist. This idea of esoteric fascism is basically just this, I think, uh, it's really attractive to paranoiac personalities. Well, what that but, means is that we can't actually prove he's a fascist or identify anything that he said, which, which yeah. would lead to this conclusion. But nonetheless, because of our yeah. our beliefs that he is, like we think that he must be somehow, you know. And basically, it's something which comes first, and then the justification is provided subsequently. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, exactly. But it's fine. I mean, to be honest, it's like also... You know, there's there's a kind of, uh, you know, I don't I don't mind being insulted by these people. Actually, I feel very humbled in a certain way to be targeted by them because I think they're some of the most, well, you know, symptomatic um, personages of our time. Yeah, I find it really hilarious. I mean, that's the primary kind of experience or emotion reading that, especially the one that came out today. Man, is it a doozy! Like the way that just imagining this person actually spending more than an hour of their life kind of watching our video and really trying to uh, uh, pick it apart. It's just hilarious. Well, you know, it's like um, our names are on their lips and, and their names are not on ours. And so I think that tells you something about who's more concerned with who. Well, I'd like to respond to at least one bit of it. And that is this idea that I'm, well, first of all, a couple of days ago, I was a, a, what was it? A minor league alt-right intellectual <laughs> and then in the course of only 24 hours i advanced to the level of proper no qualification straight up quote-unquote neo-reactionary youtuber and uh first of all i take great offense to being called a youtuber uh the youtube videos i do are only one part of my uh long-term media empire that i'm building here thank you very much okay i'm first and foremost a thinker a writer perhaps I could accept that. Uh, and hero. Hero, and hero. Uh, ideally, something like that. But uh, yeah, so that that's that's a sick burn. Very, very sick burn to call me a YouTuber. How dare you call me a YouTuber? I just happen to make videos sometimes, and YouTube is the number one marketplace for those, so I put them on YouTube. Just wanted to clarify that. Now, the second most ridiculous part of that accusation is obviously that I'm just, I'm not a neo-reactionary. I've made very clear I'm not a neo-reactionary. I think people get genuinely confused by that just because I'm, to this day, still pretty much a leftist in, in kind of the over the overarching kind of drift of my, my demeanor and my politics and my kind of vision of the ideal world. But uh, the, for me, I think the thing that confuses people is that I'm willing to talk to neo-reactionaries. So like Nick Land, for instance, I think Nick Land is very smart. I think there's a lot to learn from his writings. I think he's certainly a very interesting and highly original thinker and highly original and interesting and smart thinkers deserve to be read. Even if you strongly disagree with, uh, you know, the political implications of, of what they're saying or doing. What do you disagree with actually? With, with Nick Land? Yes. Well, I disagree with, uh, his, I mean, I, I don't even know if you call it a disagreement, but I, I don't personally 
enjoy or or admire his uh, kind of like political aesthetic of of being quite kind of uh, cruel, you could say, to um, lots of uh, particular populations. But I would be the first to admit that's a that's a mm-hmm. temperamental kind of aesthetic difference. Like I don't, I actually don't think that's on the order of well. I think you probably could drill down and find some some significant kind of uh, differences of of the truth claims that he and he and I what might make. Um, but in terms of what he's written, in terms of you know the 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 kind of intellectual and philosophical content that he's put out there that people know him for and that I think he's rightfully known for and respected for, um, you know I would be hard pressed to pick out uh, parts of it that that I find especially disagreeable. Uh, but yeah, but I obviously I'm I'm I would politically differentiate myself from his uh, from his outlook and his style and and his and his temperament and demeanor. But those are politics. Those kind of aesthetic dimensions are politics. So yeah, does that answer your question? I suppose so. I don't know. I mean, personally, what I somehow find ambivalent about in rather with respect to Nick Land is his tendency to create acolytes. He has this tendency. I don't know where it comes from exactly, and you, you see them. I mean, there are a lot of people who somehow are sort of, you know, landroids. You know? Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, he has some very interesting things to say, I think, about, you know, for example, you know, capitalism and the structure of capitalism and, and the relationship between you know, capitalism, cybernetics, and artificial intelligence. But somehow there's something very dogmatic there. And personally, I guess I feel more inclined to defend philosophy than to defend accelerationism. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So I part ways with him in, in, in a lot of ways, I think, on the political impli- on, on the political implications of some of the, the philosophical ideas. But I'm, I basically just am of the view that uh, you can interact with and have communications with uh, people you even strongly disagree with. So, that, I mean, just because I am willing to talk with people who are proper neo-reactionaries, like Nick is a proper neo-reactionary, uh, to a lot of people, that just means that therefore I must be a neo-reactionary, and that by definition I am a neo-reactionary. But that's bullshit. Well, I think to be honest, that does actually create a certain kind of problem with with respect to you and the left, because you're saying that you nonetheless continue to to identify with the left in a certain way, and it's it's actually it seems to me quite obvious that the left in its contemporary manifestation actually definitely does not want you to talk to anybody who's who's not the left. And now. You know, mm-hmm. people are saying actually this is not the real left. You know, and like there is a real left, and like this is something else. You know, and it's it's um, an right. important point actually to understand. I would say like the reality of the left and, and the reality of the right, and then mm-hmm. the, the reality with respect to each other. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think that this is in a certain way the the real left. I think basically what you were talking about when you're describing the left or the right, this political axis. You know, the left is a name for a certain kind of a force, and it's a force which pushes pushes in a specific direction. And so what we're seeing now is a kind of radicalization of, of a certain kind of leftist force to a point where actually it becomes to operate on this ground, which is very, very difficult to defend. And it's become very, very vicious, actually, precisely because it's in a way in a certain kind of a corner, at least intellectually, if not politically, and so the reason why it's very concerned with, for example, you know, really stigmatizing people like you is that it's important for the left to send signals to the people who are sort of in the left and are somewhat confused and don't necessarily know why they're there and actually feel a little bit bad being there. And it's 
a message to them that basically they're going to be punished if they try to leave. And I think mm -hmm. that this is the essence of the contemporary left today. It's composed basically of two kinds of people. It's composed of really vicious psychopaths <laughs> and it's composed of kind of confused people who sort of want to be good people and are afraid of the first group of people. And I feel like if there's any sort of politics that I personally believe in, it's like at least to say to the to the second group of people that actually you, you can leave and that nobody, in fact, has the right to tell you what books you're allowed to read, you know, what people you're allowed to listen to and who you're allowed to be friends with. So those are all really good points. And this is a much larger, more difficult conversation around what exactly political ideology is. But I mean, hell, we have plenty of time. So why don't we why don't we get right into it? I mean, I could probably teach a whole semester long course on just what is political ideology. And uh, in a nutshell, the, one of the things that I think is really important to stress for people is that when people refer to the left or the right or any particular ideology, they actually can sometimes be referring to different things. And so you can have in mind when you think of the left, you can have in mind certain a certain set of political beliefs, certain policy preferences, for instance, that are associated with what you would call the left. Sometimes, though, what people are actually talking about is a particular sociological grouping, like a certain set of people. And that's a very different, it's correlated with the first one, but it, but it's different. Right. And, uh, that's just to name two of, I would say of the, of the most common kind of reference that are actually in play when people use this word, the left. And if one person is using one of those references and one of the, one person's using another one, you can have just wildly different, uh, pictures of the world and, 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 and never really make any sense out, out of it. Another one, actually, that's worth, really worth mentioning is it, there are certain psychological dimensions, certain psychological correlates that are associated with a left-wing demeanor, for instance. So that's basically three off the bat. That's that's demeanor and psych psychological kind of substrates or tendencies. That's sociological formations like urban educated people uh, in left-wing activist organizations, for instance. Uh, that's what you might mean by the left or like a set of policy prescriptions, like, you know, uh, economic redistribution or something like that. So what you were talking about mostly when you were talking about the left, and I think this is what a lot of people have in mind when they talk about the left, you're actually talking about a particular sociological formation, well, a certain I, type of person, a certain no, group of people. I'm talking about a certain kind of a formation, and it's it's composed out of a group of people on the one hand, and I think it's composed fundamentally of a certain kind of ideology on the other. And I think that this is actually the difference between the left and the right. The right stands in the last instance, as I understand it, for the rectification of names. You know, this is Confucian principle, basically. If the names are not correct, then, you know, we're in big trouble because we have to understand what things are in order to be able to act, you know, in, in the correct way towards them. And that's a question of principle. And it's a question ultimately of a hierarchy of principle and certain principles that are actually not ideological, but can be found within any formation and even any society. So, for example, courage is not a ideological principle. You know, there's there's a question of courage that can be, it's a virtue actually. You know, or kindness is a virtue. You know, or 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 judgment is also a kind of a power, but it's not attached to a certain kind of epistemology or view of the world. It doesn't make truth claims about reality, whereas the left is dealing in ideology and it has it has a kind of notion of knowledge and a relation to knowledge that it applies in order to make certain kinds of um, 
statements about the world in which it's inhabiting. Now, the problem with that relation to knowledge is ultimately, epistemologically, it's actually difficult to know any of these things. And so it's dealing with things that are ultimately questions of axioms, actually, that it's kind of applying in order to say, like, human nature is like that, human nature is like this. Not only that, but we're operating on it in a technical way, you know. And that's the kind of relationship to power, which is ultimately also a relationship of domination to nature, over nature, and over human beings. And I think that what you see with the left, historically, is obviously, you know, the principles that the left articulates on the surface, I mean, you know, they're all very nice. But there's a way in which it fails to understand or will actually refuse to understand uh, certain kinds of phenomena that are contradictory and upsetting towards the sort of worldviews that it creates. And that's also why it becomes paranoid, actually, because of this precise relation whereby it has to insist on this kind of metaphysical domination. And in fact, metaphysics doesn't really allow mm. one to form that kind of relation to it. That's a good take. I think that there's a lot to that. That's very quite plausible. My read on why exactly the left has become so paranoid is, well, first of all, it's to note that the, that problem of the kind of paranoiac connotation of the left today, that is largely a sociological problem. That, that was one of, the, one of the purposes of, of the series of distinctions I made. One of the reasons why I'm still interested in kind of re repping the left and why I say I, I still identify mostly as a leftist is because I am the type of person whose kind of policy preferences and kind of psychological tendencies, my kind of constitution, if you will, uh, would historically be a left-wing type of person. So in that sense, I think it's important for, for people who are essentially left-leaning people to not, uh, because of the sociological perversions going on right now, to kind of run to the right. Like, that's kind of what I'm trying to represent is that, like, if you're a left-wing person, you don't have to run to the right just because the contemporary sociology of leftism, the current people who kind of represent leftism, just because those people are so patently stupid and paranoid right now, doesn't mean that you have to, therefore jump over to the right and start shitting on leftism as a whole. Um, that That's, you know, the irony of like all these lefties attacking me is that in some sense, I actually care more about them than, than anyone because despite their stupidity and their kind of insistent paranoia and, and frankly, their, their kind of hurtfulness and harmfulness to other people, I'm, I'm actually still trying to kind of rep their team in a way that doesn't make them look uh, completely hopeless. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of part of the part of the the gambit that I'm playing. I think what you're seeing now is you're seeing too many people um, on the left who are actually leftist types of people n just falling into the shadows, refusing to talk, refusing to appear in things so that the only people who kind of have any public representation as leftists are this very sociologically perverted, nasty little authoritarian uh uh, variant of leftism. And I think it's important for le for left-leaning people to just say whatever you think, do talk with whoever you want, and, you know, don't necessarily, like, uh, restylize yourself in this kind of, like, right-wing or alt-right mold. That's well, actually what I'm trying to the do. The thing is, though, this is also why you're being attacked, and it's also why, for example, people like Slate Star Codex are attacked, precisely because you actually hold the door open to an outside, which is, in a way, quite attractive. Now, if you think about how the left operates, they attack the center. They don't attack the, the actual far right. I mean, to be honest, they're afraid of the far right. But if you consider the necessity for the people who are sort of in a way running the left, 
what they need to do is they need to keep people inside this kind of enclosed ideological space. And they need to also convince them that what exists outside of that space is like a very, very evil reality composed out of evil people, motivated by hatred, motivated by evil. And anybody who, who, who disrupts that narrative becomes, becomes a definite enemy of the left. And it's very important for them to be able to smear people who are in the center. And so they can retain basically their slaves, actually, which is how they exercise power. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I think as someone who, who as I, I've told you, I think before, I've been, I've been, you know, deeply, deep, deeply involved in left-wing activist circles. My sense of what's going on there is that actually like all of the kind of even half smart, half reasonable people are kind of leaving the activist groups so that the only ones that are left are kind of those who are most enslaved to, yeah. to it. And I think that that's why this stuff seems to be getting worse and worse and why you can see these types of um, like hit pieces that like the one that came out today, they're increasingly kind of comedically stupid, like just over the top in their paranoiac uh, ridiculousness. I think that's because the there's this kind of uh, filtering process in which the only people really left standing uh, in these kind of like left wing activist organizations are increasingly like the the dumbest and the most uh, kind of uh, frenzied people. Uh, kind of kind of yeah enslaved sort of people i think these people are they're very dangerous people actually in a way and you can see that in terms of their relationship to truth because they have no problems lying about anybody repeating any lies they want you know they're, they're very violent and they're very manipulative and they'll act in that way towards other people and there are people who are uh, related to them who are quite scared and again like i think it's important to say to those people that actually you don't need to be you know enthralled actually actually by these people mm. i mean i remember also i mean one of the people who i met first of all when i was when i was younger than i am today was mark fisher you know and mm. actually he was very influential on me you met him too i mm -hmm. think and i remember when he wrote you know the vampire castle piece which has become this really luminous thing actually for you know everybody still is sort of looking at this piece and he really articulated something you know very very well and i think he also didn't quite articulated in a way well enough and there was a tragedy in that but the question of how to actually exit how to exit the vampire castle you know how to exit this kind of a formation i think it's important to understand that the exit is on the right it's on the right because this is the way that the the castle is constructed now that doesn't mean that you actually have to become right in the sense of the left's right the left has a certain kind of image of the right which is not the reality like the the truth of the right is not a jump to right-wing ideology it's an exit from ideology and i think this is very important to understand that you can actually have principles that exist on a non-ideological level that you can orientate yourself to and it's actually very liberating to mm. be honest to no longer be in the kind of a circuit where you're trying to think well what is my position supposed to be as a leftist as a whatever you know like and you can actually just be honest with yourself about things that are beyond, you know, discourse, actually, that are sort of kind of eternal, really, and that are written about in places that are not, you know, published by, you know, verso books. <laughs> well, I definitely agree with that whole last bit, but I don't think that's an exit to the right, necessarily. I think you can exit to the right. I mean, you're a kind of right-leaning guy, for sure, and I think that's fine. A lot of that is going to be temperamental, and a certain amount of variation there is fine. But I don't think that the only way out of the uh, vampire's castle is 
to the right. I do think that there's a left wing exit of the vampire's castle. And in some sense, that is one of my missions. Like that's what I'm essentially trying to do because in my view, the kind of larger tradition of the radical left is a kind of free speech tradition. It's a kind of transgressive countercultural tradition. Uh, when you understand the radical left uh, in, in its, in its best form, I think in, in history, um, you know, I think of people like Emma Goldman. I think of like what I'm doing right now is kind of in the spirit of someone like Emma Goldman. Um, and so that to me is, is, is a very viable path out of, out of the vampire's castle. And it's essentially, it just means you start to say whatever the fuck you really think and feel at all times. And you just let the chips fall where they may. It's like, it's not, it's essentially similar to what you're saying about just trying to escape from ideology. I mean, that's something that you and I think clearly agree on, but I'm curious, why do you see that as intrinsically a kind of uh, exit to the right? Well, like I said, I think that what the right means ultimately is it means the rectification of names. It's a, it's a question of understanding reality clearly and mm -hmm. being able to see reality. Mm -hmm. clearly. And the question that then would be posed is, what is the relationship between reality and ideology? You know, and what is the relationship between the left and ideology? I think the left has a profound relationship with ideology. I think it's actually structured ideologically. Fundamentally, the left is unified by ideology. And this is why it's able to combine things in a particular way that it does. You know, for example, you know, it's anti-racist, it's it's anti-sexist, it's anti-things in this way. It's it's actually also in a way reactive, actually, is also its nature, its ideological nature. What I'm saying is you don't really need ideology, and the exit from ideology is, is an entrance into principles whereby it actually doesn't even matter like what reality is like. Because, for example, again, you know, to, to be courageous, for example, or, or to be wise, you know, it stands on the right in the sense that it stands on the side of justice. It doesn't stand in a political right. It's actually an exit from politics in that sense. Well, I like a lot of that. I think we probably only disagree on relatively minor bits. I think what I, what how, the way I would put it slightly differently is that people should try to exit ideology. I agree with that totally. People should try to just figure out what is true and conform themselves to what is true. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Right. And I think uh, you're going to have temperamental and psychological variations that are going to lead people to do that with a somewhat left-wing flavor. Some will do it with a slightly right-wing flavor, but th those kind of ideological connotations should be relatively minor kind of stylistic differences after the fact. It's kind of, that's kind of that kind of goes back to what I was saying before about Nick Land. Like I think Nick, Nick is really smart and sees a lot of things accurately. He kind of goes in an ideological direction that I don't identify with, but at the end of the day, I think that's a relatively minor kind of stylistic, almost aesthetic, psychological difference. Well, I think that's his in a way residual leftism. Like I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to make this distinction because i think it's important to make it clearly i think it's very important there's a way in which there's a lot of people also you're not kind of doing that but you are in a certain way from the other side like uh move to deny actually the existence of the left and the right they say okay well we're good people in a sense we can we can we can talk amongst ourselves and i you know i mean that is obviously you know true and one should of course you know there's, there's nothing to be harmed by having a you know mm. good good open conversation about things but we have to also understand the direction we're moving in, and actually we're, we're, we're agreeing on that. Like, we have to move towards a certain kind of place of truth or position of truth. Now, what is the truth, actually? What is the truth about our position in this universe, you know, on this planet, you know, in which, you know, the Earth is, is rotating around the sun, you know, probably, right, you know, and the stars are above us. You know, there are many things that we don't know, and even our structures of knowledge are incomplete. And so it's difficult for us to orientate ourselves in uh, 
a certain way towards truth while at the same time retaining as this kind of coping mechanism also a kind of dogmatic ideology that we then depend upon to orientate ourselves in the world. And that also goes for, you know, identity politics to some degree. I mean, people are very concerned with saying, you know, like, I belong to this particular categorization of person. Now, the I, which belongs to that categorization, is actually an object. And there's a way in which actually there's also this kind of mind behind it. And the question is that mind, actually. What are the principles that that mind has at hand in order to understand what's going on? You know, and I think that is, you know, where we have to get to. And that's not a place that has ideology in it. Actually, it's a place which is, in a way, you know, indeed more esoteric and mystical, you could say, and also something which is spoken of in a long tradition of, of um, you know, of, of writings that existed before this kind of ultra-politicization of the modern era, and one can find a lot of truth in those. Right. So I can imagine kind of the alarm bells going off in the paranoiac brains that are going to be reviewing this later. And mm-hmm. when they hear esoteric, I think that that's where people start to think like, Oh, okay. That's that's where his like hidden fascism is. Do you want to maybe clarify a little bit what you mean by esoteric and, um, you know? Well, esoteric means you know hidden basically. I mean, sure. it, and it's it, it's the same word in the sense as, as you know a cult, which just means hidden. And the question is, what is hidden, right? What is hidden? What is um, the power of hiding? How does power hide? How does one hide from power? Um, you know, and how does also then one understand the ways in which power, in a sense, hides from itself? And the question of the esoteric or the question of initiation to some degree is that, you know, reality is in a way quite frightening. And one can be exposed to different levels of reality in a way that actually will terrify you if you haven't, first of all, come to some kind of understanding about your relation with respect to that. And so, as you say, yes, the paranoiacs, you know, I mean, like, you know, to exist in a paranoid reality is one in which reality is very difficult for you. It's very difficult for you to understand what's really going on. It's very difficult for you to actually orientate yourself in such a reality in a happy and um, stable way, you know. So, therefore, like, that person has to go through some kind of a process whereby they're able to find more peace of mind in order to be able to see more of the world outside of themselves. And I think one of the things that you see now, actually, with, you know, the left in particular, is a very paranoid worldview, which depends upon projection. So there's a lot of, you know, themselves that they're kind of projecting out into the world and projecting out onto other people. And to be honest, like, I find it quite amusing because Mm -hmm. I've been accused of all kinds of things. And it's kind of, like, amazing to me, actually, how many different things I've been accused of. And like, I don't know where all this stuff is coming from, (laughs) but I think it is actually coming from the accusers themselves, you know, and it's about things that they have a certain kind of, um, you know, anxious and unhappy relationship with. And, um, you know, to be able to see clearly, to be able to clearly separate yourself from the other, to be able to clearly separate yourself from the world. This is the beginning of, of of a much more profound and actually more joyful knowledge. I think that's a really good point about projection. And I think you see it especially clearly in some issues. Like I've always thought that is especially true when it comes to the paranoia around racial differences, IQ differences, you know, gender and sex differences, these sorts of differences between groups. <coughs> Excuse me. I think that's one kind of case where you see it very clearly because 
left, you know, if you basically say anything about how, you know, uh, there might be IQ differences or psychological differences across the sexes or races or something like that, leftists get very, very sensitive immediately. All their alarm bells go off. They're like, you can't say that. You can't say that. You can't even get anywhere close near saying anything like that. Um, but I've always been perplexed by that because my view is sort of like all those discourses, which frankly, I don't, I'm not like a student of them. I don't know that much about that research. I know a little bit, but I've never felt like worried or that concerned about it because I've always just had a very deep and strong belief in the ultimate equality of, of all people in terms of how, you know, their value and their worth. Like I, I from, from as long as I can remember, I've just always taken it for granted that all people essentially have the same value or worth or dignity and that that's unconditional. So when I when I hear like uh, I heard Charles Murray says this or, you know, some, you know, scientific racist says this or that or whatever, like the accusation might be, I'm just like utterly um, un, I'm, I'm just not that concerned. I'm like, OK, uh, whatever. Maybe I'll look into it. Uh, but people who like get their panties in, in a twist immediately over that kind of thing. I think that's a very clear example where they're like they're actually really terrified that maybe some people are are worth more than others. And whenever anyone gets even anywhere near that, they freak out. They say like, no, you're not allowed to say that because they're really afraid of someone pushing the conversation towards a part of themselves that they're uh, really ashamed of and that they don't know how to square and that they don't know how to um, justify to themselves. And I think a, a major background factor there is is religion, essentially. I think I, I believe in the kind of fundamental equality and dignity of all people equally in large part because of a kind of religious perspective on it. I, there's a certain kind of faith-based element there, I think. But if you're a kind of secular, educated, atheist type of person and you think, you know, religion and faith is just for, for stupid bumpkins, well, then actually you don't really have a, really, a, a good basis for uh, having a kind of belief in the fundamental equality of people. And you actually are uh, in your heart of hearts you kind of do tend to think that uh, people are only as worthwhile as their contribution to something. You do tend to see people instrumentally. You tend to see people in their, uh, you know, you see their value as, as a function of their instrumental usefulness to some cause, whether it be the labor movement or the, or whatever it might be. And so, yeah, I think that's a really uh, coherent and kind of uh, palpably obvious case of projection. Um, just to give an example to your point. Well, you know, it's like, um, most deaf said it's like you know people are valuable because god makes them valuable well i think the locus of value is an interesting way to approach things obviously when people are talking about quantitative measurements of human beings whether in terms of for example you know their their um net worth or their iq or, or anything like that i mean it's a question of a certain kind of technocratic relationship to reality and I mean, mm -hmm. you know, like, for who is it to judge humans in this way? I mean, anybody who wants to manage them, I suppose, um, or manage reality on that kind of basis. Personally, I'm not really interested. No, me neither. Yeah. Um, but in a weird way, like, that should be, a, that should be a, a kind of leftist plank, a kind of projection of, you know, the reduction of human beings to their instrumental value, because that's essentially a capitalist kind of, process. I mean, that that's that's kind of capitalist culture par excellence. Leftists should be opposed to that kind of instrumental reduction, but they don't, you don't really have any basis for opposing that outside of, of religion, I think. I think that's the problem. I think, I think atheism and secularism is a massive problem for the left today in a way that right. no one really wants to acknowledge on the left. Well, the left is itself a certain kind of form of 
in a way degrade a religious thought actually it's a kind of like, right. it's a kind of like religion without without god and the problem is that right. actually when you create a religion without god what you create is a certain form of satanism and it's simply power actually when it comes down to it because there's nothing which is stopping any kind of power from being exercised and so in the name of equality you know the whole world can be reduced to ashes actually and this has happened again and again in the history of um communism in the history of also you know the religious cults that are in themselves in a way communistic norman cohn writes about this very well um mm -hmm. i think the understanding that we have as human beings a certain kind of limit to our ability to understand the world and therefore to make truth claims about the world and therefore the question of a uh, normative relationship to the world which would be you know in uh, in the bible i mean they speak about yera which means like which means fear and awe it's like a certain kind of relationship to reality and it's a certain kind of relationship to god and you have to maintain yourself in this relation because otherwise you can get very confused and you can get in particular confused about your own level of power uh, with respect to reality to be able to manipulate reality and reality will then take its revenge on you and i think this is actually something which is perhaps starting to happen now in our society and people are feeling it and people are feeling very anxious because of this kind of faustian project of modernity which basically said you know we have killed god you know and we have overthrown the ancien regime and now we're going to build using only this kind of human um this kind of human uh you know, power in order to manage things. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing that maybe human power is not actually enough to, to manage things appropriately. Mm. We have a question from our friend Diana. Mm. How can you make life better for anyone without managing reality? Or are you mostly interested in a uniformly unmanaged, chaotic suffering for everyone? Point taken, of course we have to manage reality. Of course it's, it's an essential part of, of life. I'm not saying reality shouldn't be managed. But the management of reality can't be the end all be all of your life and purpose here on earth. Well, I mean, it's, it's a question, for example, like Diana, you know, I mean, if you have, a, if you, obviously one knows others, you know, and what is one's relationship to others, you know, like one in a way could manage them, right. One could quite deliberately manage them. Mm -hmm. But I think that would be also in a sense, a kind of joyless thing to do. I mean, how could, I think actually like what one has to do, in a certain way, is one has to keep us at a sense of the sacred in terms of our lives, you know, and we live in this reality that's been profaned to this extreme degree. And also our relations to each other have been profaned. Uh, and there's these forces of capital which are working in order to profane them quite specifically. I mean, I think if you also look at that, you can also see that in an esoteric way in terms of a kind of occultist power. Think about the... Uh, phrase netflix and chill i think it's a very revealing phrase it's uh, obviously this name of this corporation is also the name for a kind of casual sex procedure you know you can imagine the scene basically in all of these metropolitan uh, zones of the world like you know people meet on one app and they go to like a chain restaurant and they go to somebody's <laughs> rented apartment and they netflix and chill and like this is a this is a uh enslaved relation actually to capital and it's capital that wants you to be in that relation you know and to be able to actually take a step back and to even just do nothing actually just to kind of do nothing and to be able to enjoy doing nothing 
and just contemplating the world in a way in which one is actually just simply being and not doing and not frantic and not distracted and not managing anything but just letting things be, why not do that actually instead of managing things? Yeah, that's very well put. And Diana's pushing me a little bit on that. She said that I said, quote, I'm not interested in managing reality. I don't recall exactly what I said, but trying to remember and construe that as charitably as possible. I think, you know, to me, when you talk about managing reality, that that to me sounds a bit like Plato. That sounds a little bit like the noble lie. I think a lot of people think that reality is something that has to be kind of candy coated for other people, that the way you should choose words, for instance, when communicating with other people should be to elicit just and only the effects that you want. And uh, Diana, I know you're quite interested in, in that and, and that's fine. It is a part of life. I'm not being some kind of like purist who's saying I, I somehow avoid it. Uh, but there are other ways of using language. There are other ways of being towards, of, of existing and, and being towards your environment and, and the people around you. Uh, DC was kind of actually articulating that a bit. Like I think for instance, trying to figure out some, trying to figure out what is true and to communicate what is true. Uh, actually, when you do that really honestly, you you have to actually forego a certain amount of management or instrumental uh, uh, power. There are kind of different ways of using words. And I think a lot of people kind of think that the only way to use words is to basically elicit the effects that you want out of people. But I think if, if that's the way you see things, um, well, one, that's it's just a kind of poverty. It's a kind of emotional, psychological, experiential poverty. There are other ways of being that can't be reduced to that. And it also becomes quite nasty and brutish and, and exploitative, ultimately. Like, you know, what DC was just saying before is actually like, you know, should, should be part of, you know, the perspective of, an, of any kind of anti-capitalist uh, perspective. Like, this is one of the major problems with contemporary kind of capitalist culture is it does kind of brainwash us to be obsessed with the instrumental. Like if it doesn't have instrumental usefulness to us, we have a hard time even understanding uh, what it is or why it might even be worth uh, investigating or, or reflecting on. And that is a kind of impoverishment. It's a kind of, uh, it's a, it's a kind of way in which our ability to live fully, to, to fully kind of uh, see and hear and, and, and understand what we are, where we are to get the full, to get the full extent of that. It's being kind of robbed from us to the degree that we are only know how to uh, value things instrumentally. And we only are able to see other people in the environment around us as, as a reality be, to be managed. You know, if you, if you only see things that way, you're, you're, you're missing out on the much larger picture of, of, you know, like what we're able to think and see and hear and feel and ultimately experience and create with each other. And that's why I think this ultimately does have a kind of political upshot um, because if you do believe in equality, if you do believe in creating better communities, then you uh, implicit in that, I think, is a kind of yearning for a way of being together. That's that's more full. That's more, you know, that that's what, you know, in, in the good kind of left wing tradition, we would call flourishing. This this dream of flourishing is essentially a, a kind of vision in which we don't just reduce each other to, you know, our instrumental usefulness because that 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 is actually quite a brutal and um that that causes a lot of suffering is, is the way that i would say it and ran question here from spiced demiurge uh also throwing us two bucks very kind of you we'll try not to spend it all in one place what do you think of gnosticism and orthodoxy you want to take that well i don't know i mean gnosticism is an interesting one because it seems to mean 
in a way two different things. I think that you could, for example, look at it through the lens of of you know, PKD and, and Philip K. Dick's writings on Gnosticism. He writes about the empire, uh, the black iron prison of the empire. It's a phrase that has a lot in common, actually, with Blake's mind-forged manacles. The idea is that there's this kind of deranging force that's sort of separating us from the, from the, from the true reality, and in a way we have to understand the nature of this force, and then if we do, we can overcome that, and, you know, beyond the empire, there's, you know, this kind of palm tree garden, Philip Hedrick says. And I'm quite sympathetic to that point of view, actually. I think that there's a, there is this kind of force somehow. It's hard to say exactly what it is. I mean, it's related to also this kind of political reality. It's related to a certain form of power. It's orgone it's, energy. It's this kind of, there's, you know, it's like the way in which power is exercised, obviously, is very few people say to you, like, I'm going to enslave you and make <laughs> you do what I want. Like, what they tell you is, like, don't you want to do something like this? <laughs> and then you say, oh, maybe I do, you know? And, like, there's a way also in which, one gets into a kind of addictive relationship with a certain kind of goal, and then one is able to be manipulated through that kind of relation. And the, you know, PKD project basically was again it was a certain kind of rectification of names because he wanted to say, well, you know, we can we can move past this kind of force and we can see things in a more clear way and we can live in a in a more joyful way. And so that's kind of his Gnosticism. And then there's another form of Gnosticism, which is actually exactly the opposite, which Eric Vogelin talks about. For example, he sees you know, communism, in a sense, as being a certain form of Gnosticism. You can, I think, see in you know, contemporary gender ideology a certain kind of Gnosticism in the sense of, you know, I was born in the wrong body. And the true reality is this reality, which is not material, it's kind of metaphysical. And uh, ironically, through uh, actually a material operation, one can then acquire, you know, the, this true metaphysical reality, apparently. Like, whether one actually can or not is hard to say. Um, so I don't know exactly how to then, you know, define the difference, mm. to be honest. I mean, I think that there's a way in which, um, you know, on a very sort of simple level, like, one is itself somehow negative or, let's say, counter-initiatic in a certain way and that it confuses one more. I think that if you conceive of reality also, and this is where the problem of equality comes in, actually, I think, because it's, it's to do with principles and there's a certain necessity for a, a kind of a hierarchy of principles and also a kind of hierarchy of realities in order to be able to understand things appropriately. You have to be able to understand, for example, that, you know, like Plato is on a level above, you know, like the newspaper, right? <laughs> and you have to be able to orientate yourself towards something which is sort of more subtle more intelligent, in a way, more luminous. So that operation, whereby you sort of ascend, in a sense, the initiatic ascent that you see spoken of in various esoteric texts, um, that is counterposed to this kind of a flattening and equality of realities in which all realities are considered to be the same. Now, ultimately, if one is, in a sense, orientated towards trying to find out what's going on on the deepest level, one has to sort of move towards something which is clearer. And that requires actually a certain kind of inequality in one's approach, because one has to say, for example, like this guy who you might meet, you know, knows more than that person, mm -hmm. you know, is in a way more admirable than that person, is in a way a, a person that you might want to actually emulate rather than not. 
And that's also about your own self, actually. It's about the relationship that you might have with, with different versions of yourself, with different modes of your own being, you know, in which you say, for example, like the being in which you are, let's say, a drunk drug addict is worse than the being in which you're healthy and clear-minded. Right. And then how one organizes oneself individually along that line is, is a somewhat, you know, it's an inequality of the self, actually, that one has to sort of accept and adopt in a certain way to move forward. Yeah, I would I would agree with much of that, and that that is one of the classic kind of uh, failure modes on the left is this kind of um, this like wish or will to believe that hierarchy can just be kind of done away with, or that there's no objective differences in quality, uh, you know, among among you know certain objects or actors or whatever. So yeah, but I mean, the, yeah, not to bring this everything back to a, a debate about left or right because it's not even a debate, but it's more kind of extricating. Uh, you know, what exactly these different terms uh, and traditions mean. But, you know, there is a kind of somewhat aristocratic, you know, rectification of names tradition on the left also. You know, I think of someone like Adorno, right? You know, there is a kind of educated uh, sensitivity to differences and and unequal qualities uh, that does have the courage to say, no, actually, like, this is better than this. I think Adorno and, is one of the most pernicious influences on the contemporary left. He's, like, absolutely the embodiment of this kind of, like, um, extremely depressing intellectual neuroticism. He was also a pretty sleazy guy, actually. One of the things that people forget about this sort of famous protest when, when the students at Frankfurt University, you know, um, remo- you know removed their decolletage, mm-hmm. in a sense, to bear their breasts to Adorno is because he was sleeping with all of his students. He was, oh, really? He's the absolute embodiment of this kind of hypocritical Marxist mm-hmm. intellectualism. And, um, you know, I think the idea that he's committed to the to the rectification is, is, just, is just incorrect, actually, I think. That's interesting. Yeah. Well... Fair enough. I mean, I'm not. I'm not exactly going to go to bat for Adorno, although I quite uh, do admire his writings and think there's a lot of value there, especially to the contemporary left. I mean, mm-hmm. he's he's definitely anomalous. To he represents a kind of uh, strand of sickly uh, malaise. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Uh, the but atmosphere when you read Adorno is just like it's just so. Um, it's rather depressing, for sure. It's just. I mean, he he's really committed to this kind of gray world of sort of joyless arrogance, actually, and I think that you can see him reflected very well in, in certain aspects of the academic left, actually, the kind of hmm. academic, arid, Marxist left. You know? Well, that's interesting. And again, I mean, I, I'm not gonna. Uh, defend Adorno's personal life or anything like that, but it definitely seems like in his debate with Marcuse, uh, you know, academia, uh, if academia could have gone down two different forking paths, that of Adorno or that of Marcuse, it obviously went the path of Marcuse more so. Right, so to, to, to go back to the example that you gave, the famous anecdote about the, the student protesters, you know, uh, Marcuse was obviously much more sympathetic, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with the letters that they exchanged, Marcuse and Adorno exchanged letters about that basically, uh, where he's kind of, Adorno's kind of saying, you know, these student protesters are getting out of hand. They're completely ridiculous. And this is not the spirit of the revolution. And Marcuse kind of says, ah, yeah, you know, maybe, but give them time. You know, we need to support them. This is, this is the path. Uh, It seems clear that we are now, you know, uh, if that was a a possibility of two forking paths, uh, Adorno's path was kind of decimated and set aside. And we're now kind of gone down the path of, of affirming that, that kind of craziness. So uh, it's interesting that your critique of Dorno, I didn't know that about his personal life, but it definitely seems to me that there is, if you want leftists, if you want like especially radical kind of somewhat Marxist leftists 
to become less stupid and less insane in a direction that I think you would appreciate, uh, you would want them reading more Adorno. I don't think I want anybody reading more Adorno. I think you know. I think we've had enough of Marxism, actually. To be honest, I think the, the there's nothing to be gained necessarily from reading more of it. I think that there are traditions which are deeper and which are which are more illuminating than you know the works of this dead 19th century German, you know, minor Ricardian. I'm not a Marxist, yeah. but Adorno, no, there's a lot of value in there. He was extremely sensitive. He was very aesthetically sensitive. And I think he's um, a really powerful kind of conveyor of, of, of the extraordinary kind of aesthetic uh, and emotional uh, catastrophe that that modernity has has wrought on people in a way that I would think you I, I would have thought you would would appreciate. I would like all the things, to be honest. You know, older. All, yeah, like all the texts and different texts. And, you know, I mean, I think that the tradition that we had from, you know, the Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment tradition has run out of steam to some degree. And I think that what's going to have to happen sooner rather than later is people will have to reconnect to things that are stronger and deeper than these kinds of intellectual games. Mm. And, um, you know, I hope that's the path that people to take yeah fair enough fair enough so uh how about this idea that you are a member of a far-right turkish oh. cell uh that's uh. a that's a pretty good one isn't it so these people on the internet literally they literally think that we have some sort of relationship to a far-right fascist sect uh coming out of turkey known as the gray wolves and now I don't even want to show you the symbol because I don't feel like being screenshotted again, having to deal with that. Mm. But uh, they have like a silly little hand sign. And it, we were like DC and Nina did it in the last live stream. Mm. Uh, not even in that connection. I think it was like completely, it's a generic hand sign that I think you see like. It's just a sign of the wolf. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's like it doesn't, I mean, I, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. I like, I mean, bulls are noble creatures. I remember there's the That's esoteric of, fascism. Busted. At the end of um, Grin Without a Cat, this great film by Chris Marker, there's this mm. shot of the hunting wolves from a helicopter. You know, I always thought it was the most sad thing. Hmm. So, yeah, what else? Was there anything else on your agenda? Oh, we did actually just do an hour. Mm. Um, aside from uh, disconfirming the rumors that we're uh, in the Grey Wolves, no, we're not in the Grey Wolves. I wanted to get that on. There were some other talking points from, the, from that piece we could discuss. Well, I mean, I don't know. It kind of speaks for itself. I mean, also, um, I'm not sure how much more I have to say. I think the, yeah. the coffee is, you know, reaching its limit in terms of how much more I'm able to contribute. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I tell my audience that these are one-hour sessions usually, so we can go over if we want, but we've already done our hour, so. Um, actually, if you have I, any closing thoughts, it's an I, I really Actually, I like Armenians. Mr. You like Armenians? Mr. Mr. Buff, by the way. Do people have any questions mm -hmm. or comments before we wrap it up? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, the Chapo Trap House people—they do like some gray wolf thing, also. Do they really? Apparently, I, I learned. I, I learned this. Them. I learned a lot about gray wolves as I was doing research about this accusation. Mm. Yeah, so. you know, it's interesting to think about how this will play out actually in the future. Yeah. In okay. terms of these kinds of um, these different kinds of fronts and these different kinds of movements and these different kinds of political movements and these different forms of power. Personally, you know, I'm interested. In defending 
philosophy, actually. This is ultimately what I'm interested in doing. I don't have a political agenda. I'm not even that interested in politics. But politics comes to you, like the state comes to you. You know, they send the people to you and they tell you that you have to shut up. You have to stop talking. And, you know, they have to, you know, you have to, they say that you're this thing and they say that you're that thing. And I mean, I think, you know, to anybody who, who is interested, in my opinion, is that you don't have to listen to this shit, actually. And there's not really anything they can do to you at the end of the day. And if they set you on fire, you can laugh in their faces. Well, but I think there's, I think there is currently a kind of realignment taking place. I don't know, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fool's errand to predict the future, but it does look to me like there's something substantial on a foot in which, yeah, like people are losing patience with this kind of um, really oppressive, like left-wing party line and left-leaning people are leaving kind of mainstream activist groups and the current face of the radical left. And they are going on the internet and talking with people and, and listening to stuff like this and people like, people want interesting conversations with all types of weird, different people. And um, it seems to me like what's happening is anyone who's like, thinks something interesting, like if you're a genuine thinker and you just are either refusing to, or you're constitutionally incapable of just like uh, repeating party lines. If you're that type of person, you're increasingly pushed out of, of kind of mainstream institutions. So you're forced to basically uh, build your own kind of channels and and build your own work outside of the mainstream institutions, that looks like it's 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 going on more and more. That doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. So the only long term implication of that, the only the only equilibrium there, is that all of the smart, interesting people who are honest and just think creatively and freely are going to be outside of the mainstream institutions, and the only people left inside the mainstream institutions are going to be the the saddest, meekest. Uh, kind of like most uh, party line towing people. And then wh where that where it goes. So that seems very clear. That looks like it's happening now. Um, you know, like Nina, for instance, take someone like Nina. Like, I don't know Nina very well. I've, I, I know her. I've gotten to know her. And I'm very grateful to have gotten to know her over the past few days, over the past week of um, sharing her home with her. And my so I don't need, know Nina very well. But my impression of Nina and frankly, you too, DC, is um like, I don't know you very well, but we've talked a lot over the past few days. My impression of both of you is kind of similar. You're just on, you, you just think a lot. You think what you want, you say what you want, and you, your mind goes in different directions and you don't try to control that ideologically. You, it just goes where it goes. And that type of person is increasingly not allowed to participate in polite society. Uh, and the only result of that is that, yeah all of the intellectual activity is going to be outside of the institutions. Well, I don't and, like polite society anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm not much a fan of it either. My point, my point is just that, uh, that seems to be already taking place. That's not a prediction that's taking place more and more. The, all of the real intellectual activity is going to be taking place outside of institutions. What the, the big question is when that, when the mainstream institutions are occupied almost exclusively by just very kind of fearful, sad, uh, people who more or less like repeat what that whatever they're told to repeat is that going to kind of implode from its own kind of lack of energy and its kind of intellectual uh, weakness, or is it going to become increasingly emboldened in its aggress in its aggression? That's the big question that I think you know it's hard to predict in advance because you could kind of see like the higher education as we know it, for instance. You could, on one hand, you could see it kind of in a couple years 
just all the people who are professors who are left standing as professors are just kind of like the saddest, uh, kind of like most obedient people. And then that actually, you know, uh, undercuts the, the very, the very purpose and function of what makes a university even work. And so the whole thing kind of just, uh, becomes financially unsustainable and kind of go, you know, uh, goes, goes deeply, uh, into failure or something like that. Or you could imagine it, it doing the opposite in the sense that those people become increasingly politicized. They actually do get better at, uh, taking power in some regard. And then you, and, and they actually are able to more and more, uh, shut down opposing, you know, like outside, you know, uh, channels outside of the institutions. So that's the way I kind of see it. There's like this race taking place between all the forces of the outside, like things like cryptocurrency and all the, the, the technological innovation kind of going in the direction of independence and freedom and fragmentation uh, versus like these increasingly sad, empty souls who are kind of like uh, true believers in the institutions. And the question is just like, who is going to uh, have the kind of like power the power advantage, but it seems to me like if I had to, if I had to predict, it looks to me like those escape vectors are just way too numerous. It's way too numerous. And uh, you're going to have so many interesting, smart, creative people on the outside, just doing their own thing, inventing new things and entire new subcultures emerging in every which way. Uh, that's going to be like uh, at some level impossible to, to, to repress. I think, especially when the repressing forces are these kind of like sad, lame uh, types of people who, you know, fast forward a few years are going to be the only ones left standing in those institutions. I think there's an optimistic point of view. I think that if you consider also the scale of the kinds of forces that are in play, it goes beyond the question of who controls culture, actually. It's to do with these historical forces that are very large and uh, probably ultimately unstoppable. And um, so you're, you're pessimistic about the uh, exodus to the outside and, you know, free, independent thinkers and creative people well, just kind of uh, becoming so kind of numerous and un unconstrained that they become kind of ungovernable? You're, you're pessimistic about that? Well, I think that, you know, one, in a sense, wins actually already by leaving because there's a way in which remaining within these kinds of structures is so kind of psychologically punishing and depressing and unpleasant and that goes actually for the, you know, not just, mm -hmm. you know, institutions, but this kind of mindset. Definitely. This, this, I would say, you know, you dispute, but I think like this leftist mindset, you know, this kind of resentful mindset, like it's better not to remain there almost no matter what they do to you. And, um, you know, so I think people should leave. And I think it would be a beautiful thing if they did, actually. It could, could create this kind of swarming out oh. of these institutions, you know, the well, likes of which the world has never seen. Well, I do agree with that part because I did leave the left as a sociological entity. That goes back mm -hmm. to my distinction. I mean, I, I still, in some sense, represent certain left-wing ideas and tendencies, and I'm not willing to kind of throw that baby out with the bathwater. But I, I have basically done what you just said. I've, I've completely severed myself sociologically from the left. I had my falling out, you know, more than more than a year ago now, and... Uh, I more or less am persona non grata in within like left-wing activist mm. culture or groups. But that, again, that's the sociology, which I think it's important to separate from, from the ideas. So uh, we had a final comment by Cian Jones. Am I saying that? Is that an Irish name? Is that, am I pronouncing it correctly? Cian, there's probably some better way to pronounce it. Should we buy Chainlink? Oh, thank you for the $2, Mr. Jones, but I'm afraid I don't know what Chainlink is. Uh, so I cannot speak to that at all. It sounds like some kind mm. of uh cryptocurrency 
uh, uh, project or something like that. I have no clue. So, uh, all right. I think we should wrap it up. Folks, if you haven't done so already, subscribe to my goddamn YouTube channel. I'm the best neo-reactionary minor uh, alt-right uh, YouTuber in probably the world right now. So, uh, thank you. Just kidding. Not actually. But uh, if you want to get on the Discord server, you can uh, shoot me a message privately. I'll bring you in on the Discord server. Uh, do you have any uh, parting words? Uh, I'm sorry I can't answer these questions because, I mean, they're quite interesting. To be honest, like, I, I don't know, like, what um, you mean by... I don't really know what you mean by by vril. Like I've heard that word before, but um, in, do you mean like vriya and like this kind of like Sanskrit? I don't know. Eliada, read him. And and then someone was talking about Ed, Edward Gibbon, and you know, I mean, I think yeah, he's great, great to read. But I mean, yeah, I, I have nothing left. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. Mike Mike Ray says cringe and blue pilled, which reminds me uh, one of the funniest bits in this hit piece that came out today about us was that uh, it says it cites how in the last live stream I referred to myself as based and red pilled, and they cited this as proof that I'm alt right uh, because based and red pilled apparently is uh, I think they said that's from the alt right lexicon. Very very uh, prescient detective work there. So yes. And Mark Zuckerberg is his son, and cynical. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I linked to your book in the description. Oh, thank you. Yeah, if you're interested in Mr. Miller's ideas here, I, I linked <laughs> I linked to some of his work in the description. Oh. So, um, yeah, anything else we have to cover? Subscribe to my goddamn channel, and uh, give me all your money also, by the way, people. Mm. I'd really appreciate that. Um, otherwise, thank you very much for hanging out with us, as always. And, uh, yeah, I'll be, back on, I'll be back on air sooner or later. All right. Ciao, guys. All right. Later, folks. Thanks, DC. No problem. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.